morning, Life Church, and happy 4th of July weekend to you. I know it's a weird one, but we're going to continue with ministry doing the very, very best we can under these circumstances. Now, we've been doing this series called The God Questions, and last week we asked the question, what was Jesus really like? And we started looking at what he was like by looking at his friends, who he picked as his friends and how he related to them. And we learned some valuable truths about friendship by studying that. Now, I want to go a little further down that road uh, by looking at Jesus from a few different angles in order to discover what he was really like. Today, we're going to look at Jesus by looking at his humility, his unique humility. In Philippians chapter 2, there's a key verse of scripture we're going to read together there. Here's how it goes. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Now, without question, that is the greatest act of humility that has ever taken place. And Jesus plays it out a bit further on earth. Jesus had been invited to the home of a real prominent religious guy in the community, a guy known as a Pharisee. Pharisees were extremely religious, very respected people, and very proud of following all the rules and all the regulations. They primarily did it so they could be seen by others, so that people could hold them in high regard for their goodness. They love the way the people looked at them when they prayed their long ritual prayers, love the way the people adored their Armani robes, and how they gasped when they flashed their lower bowl season tickets to the synagogue. And they always peeked out of the corner of their eyes to see who was paying attention when they gave their offerings. They used their titles and their tassels and their Rolex sundials to make sure that everybody else knew that they were better than they were. They tried to create this distance between themselves and regular people. That's kind of like the pastor whose congregation voted him the most humble man in America, even gave him a gold medal with that inscribed on it. But the next Sunday they had to take it away because he wore it. So this Pharisee had invited some other Pharisees and this guy Jesus to a dinner party in his home. Now in dinner parties in those days, quite often the table arrangement was in sort of a horseshoe shape and the host, the, the main guy there would be centered right in the middle of the table Guest of honor would be right at his left and his right, and the rest of the dinner party guests would be around the rest of the table in kind of descending order of importance. And Jesus attends this dinner party, and he notices that as the people arrive, there's this mad scramble of everybody trying to get the seat of honor right up next to the host. They all want to be seated right next to the host. They want that very best spot. And when Jesus sees that, it prompts him to tell this story, this parable that was recorded for us in Luke chapter 14. It goes like this. Jesus speaks and says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. It could happen that someone more important than you has been invited and your host who invited both of you would have to come and say to you, let him have this place. Then you would be embarrassed and have to sit in the lowest place. I mean, how embarrassing would that be? You get there early and you slide right up to the seat of honor and you get there feeling real good about yourself, waving at all the little people seated out at the outer edges. But after it begins, the host comes up to you and he says, excuse me, 
I'm sorry, you're sitting in someone else's place. I'm gonna have to ask you to move. And now looking up, you see that all the other spaces are taken except for that seat at the outer edge of the table where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now you get up and you've got to do the walk of shame holding your plate. And this time you're not waving at all the little people. You are the little people. And your eyes are fixed on your shoes as you walk and you come down and sit in that very last seat. I mean, that's a harsh reality. I understand how this works. Years and years ago when the Orlando Magic knew how to win a lot of games, I was meeting a friend from church at the Orlando Arena. I was gonna buy the tickets and then we would meet there and we would kind of split the cost. And I was trying to get the very, very best seats for the least amount of money. And I can be kind of a haggler and get good deals from time to time. And later on, I realized I actually had some pride about this, didn't even realize it. But that night I wasn't coming up with anything good. The only tickets that I could afford were way up in the nosebleed section, like in the corner up by the rafters. Uh, back behind the basket, just awful. I think our seats were actually closer to my house than they were the basketball court. And it was kind of humbling to have to walk all the way up there past everybody because literally every seat in the house is better than the ones that we had. But I had an idea. I thought, you know, lots of those lower bowl seats are empty all the way through the first quarter. And so I'm thinking, those lower bowl people, those little sinners down there don't even care enough to show up for their expensive seats. I bet we could identify two specific seats next to each other down there. We could slip our way down there and nobody would even understand the difference at all. And I justified it by saying, you know, it's almost a sin to let those seats go unused. So midway through the second quarter, we head down there, we lingered near the back of that section and we're just kind of waiting for an opening. And it was like the promised land down there. It was larger than life. I could like smell the player sweat. And then the usher started talking to some people and I thought, this is our opening here. And we quickly shuffled down to about row eight in the high rent district. And we went to the two seats that we saw open. And we sat down giggling like schoolgirls, and we're just kind of sitting there real low. And when halftime came, we didn't even get up and get out of our seats to go get anything because we probably thought we couldn't even get back in. So we just sat tight. Well, the second half had just begun when I saw it all begin to unravel. The usher was walking down to our row, two guys walking with him, tickets in hand. And they're looking down at us and they're pointing and starting to talk to each other. This is not good, my heart was just pounding. And the guy says, hey, those are our seats. And I was like, what, what, whatever do you mean? Oh, uh, this must have some confusion having to do with our seats and our tickets. Okay, I'm beginning to understand the problem here. These are very bad seats that I have, and we're sitting in very good seats right here. I have bad tickets, you have good tickets. And we got up to start shuffling away. That's a walk of shame for you. We weren't waving at anybody on the way out. All those lower bowl people were looking down at us like we just defecated in their section. And so we just made our way back up to the nosebleed section where we deserve to be. It was kind of rough and humbling. That's a walk of shame. We weren't waving at anybody. So I, I identify with Jesus' story here. Then Jesus applies this parable to everybody that's sitting in the audience there. Here's what he says in verse 10. When you're invited, take the lowest space so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, why does Jesus make such a big deal out of this pride issue? You ever thought about that? Why is it as you leaf through the pages of Scripture, you see over and over and over again that God feels very strongly about this issue of pride? For instance, in Proverbs 16:5, it says, God can't stomach arrogance or pretense. Believe me, he'll put those upstarts in their place. Then in Proverbs 29, 23, it says, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. And in James chapter 4 and verse 6, it says these words, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me say that again. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud? Do you want to be on the other side of that? God opposing you? Why does God feel so strongly about pride and arrogance and ego? And why does he consistently call us to the opposite of all that, which is humility? Well, friends, I want to suggest to you that the reason that God makes such a big deal out of this pride issue is that he knows the ugliness of pride. He knows where it originated. He knows how the enemy fell from the heights because of pride. God knows the damage that it does in life, in family arenas, in academic arenas, in political arenas, in business arenas, and yes, even in church arenas. And he knows the soul damage that it does. For instance, let's just be honest, a little informal survey right there in your home. How many of you just love to be around big-headed people? How many of you would say, man, I would love to have brunch today with a conceited jerk? We just don't want to be around people like that. And the truth is that pride wrecks relationships. One counselor was asked this. The person said, you've dealt with all these people in conflict with each other. What is the number one roadblock? says, what's the biggest issue that prevents resolution and reconciliation from taking place? And he said, without missing a beat, he said, pride. It's pride. Nobody wants to humble themselves. Nobody wants to admit they're wrong. Nobody wants to ask forgiveness. And nobody wants to extend forgiveness. So the Bible has been acknowledging what pride does to relationships for thousands of years. Proverbs 13.10 says this, pride only breeds quarrels but wisdom is found in those who take advice. In other words, those who are humble enough to listen. I know longtime friendships that have been dissolved into bits and pieces because one or both parties cannot humble themselves and ask forgiveness. It's just pride. I know marriages have broken up because one or the other has to win every single argument. It's just pride. I know people who silently struggle with a money issue or a relational issue or an addiction issue, a sin issue, or they're just too prideful to open up and say, I'm in over my head on this one. I need help. Destructive pride is everywhere. People won't admit failings. And unfortunately, I know this not just theoretically. I know it by experience because it's me. It's just difficult to admit weaknesses, isn't it? But when you're humble, you don't have to be right all the time. When you're humble, you can handle criticism better. When you're humble, you can say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. But on the other hand, pride wrecks relationships. 
Now, here's a verse that all of us, all of us ought to internalize. It comes from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, a different translation than we read earlier. Here's what it says. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Friends, Jesus knew pride wrecks relationships. Jesus also knew that pride is a roadblock to happiness in so many of our lives. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody seems to be in a frantic search for happiness, and there is no shortage of advice on how to be happy. So here's a question. Why aren't more people happy? Why aren't more of your colleagues at work happy? Why are there so many kids today that seem unhappy? Now, on a more personal note, why aren't you more happy? Jesus taught that happiness is kind of a counterintuitive sort of thing. We think happiness is found in good circumstances, but Jesus taught that happiness is determined not by what's happening around you, but by what's happening in you. Now, the first step towards happiness is humility. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, from the great and the eye-opening Sermon on the Mount, he says these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, just look at that word, blessed. The word blessed literally means to be happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Now, who are the poor in spirit? I mean, Jesus is not referring to those who are down in the dumps. It's not like he's saying, oh, he or she is so poor in spirit right now. No, it's not what he's talking about. To be poor in spirit just means to recognize spiritually who you really are, to recognize your shortcomings before a perfect, holy God. But think about it. You don't impress the engineers of Boeing with the airplane that you made out of paper. I used to impress people with how far I can drive a golf ball. But recently, we've been playing a bunch with a guy by the name of Eddie Fernandez, Fast Eddie Fernandez, who was the 2018 Masters Long Drive Champion of the world, <laughs> of the world. So God has been helping me with my humility in that. So I don't brag to him. I don't say, hey, watch how far I hit this one, Eddie boy. That's ridiculous. What would he say to me? He would say, that's cute. Step aside, little man. <laughs> I'd be foolish to try to do that. Now, kind of in the same way, we would be foolish to brag about our goodness in the presence of a perfect and holy God. People who are poor in spirit can actually look at themselves in the eye and say, I say some things, I do some things, and I think things, stuff that just underscores how far short I fall without Jesus. Friends, that's humility. That's real humility. And Jesus is saying, the first step in you becoming happy is acknowledging that and to admit that you're spiritually broke without me. Matter of fact, he goes on, he's saying, happy are those of you who can acknowledge that you need God because you are the ones who will truly be happy. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble, because the kingdom belongs to those who can honestly admit that they don't deserve it and they didn't earn it. It takes a very, very certain honesty to fall on your knees before the God who made you and say, this is who I am, God. Sometimes I'm a pride-filled, arrogant, selfish person. I deceive or I covet or I lust or I gossip. There's greed at work inside of me that's doing so much damage. And I'm utterly dependent on you, God, and your grace. I'm in a hole so deep I can't climb out of it. Only you can lift me out. That's hard for me. That's hard for people to do, people who live with this illusion that I made myself who I am, 
I deserve all this. I worked for it. I earned it. I did it all by myself. It's kind of like the CEO guy who pulls into a gas station one day and his wife is with him and she goes into the little convenience store there for a bottle of water. And the CEO notices while he's pumping gas that his wife is in there having a conversation with the, the, the attendant there in the convenience store. And it looks like they're having a real friendly conversation. So she comes back and as they drive away, he asks about that little conversation. Turns out that this was a guy that she had dated when she was in high school. And so feeling kind of cocky, the husband says, I bet I know what you're thinking. I bet you're thinking you're pretty lucky to have married me, a CEO and not the gas station guy. She said, no, no, actually I was thinking that if I married him and not you, he'd be the CEO and you'd be working in the gas station. <laughs> Friends, none of us would be anything without the God who extended his grace to us. And it seems like whenever you talk to people who have acknowledged their fallenness to God and to others, people who have found that happiness comes from being poor in spirit, there is usually a common denominator with these people. They'll go back to a time that they might describe as a time that they exalted themselves and they got humbled. Humbling experiences can bring us down to reality. It's like a father who says, I was working night and day. I was driven, driven, driven. It was all about my career, my agenda, and my justifications that I was doing it all for my family. And then my 15-year-old daughter told me that she was pregnant. And wham, that humbled me. I realized I didn't know my daughter anymore. I didn't know what was going on inside her soul. Pride was an obstacle that blinded him. Some are watching this presentation today, and the obstacle that's standing between you and God is not an intellectual one. The obstacle is just stubborn pride. Some people have a deep pride at work in their life that just refuses to let you acknowledge your need for God and for the work of Christ in your life and you exalt yourself by ignoring that reality. And you would argue that you're not exalting yourself at all, but yet you insist that you stay on the, on the throne of your life and not God. And you need to know that there is a danger that every time God tugs at you to get your attention and you resist, that your heart gets a little harder and a little harder and a little harder. And that is a danger zone, friends. Don't let that go on any longer. Remember, the Bible says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So will it take one of those soul-wrenching experiences to get us to humble ourselves? I hope not. Certainly doesn't have to. Why don't we just take a moment and go to God and ask him to help us with this? Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Our Heavenly Father, uh, we understand now, Lord, that you oppose the proud and yet you give grace to the humble. And Lord, you ask us to humble ourselves. That's the instructions that we're given. Not to wait for you to humble us, but to humble ourselves voluntarily. So Lord, we see the value of humility. We see the supernatural power of humility. And we ask God that you would help us with this. Help us to crucify our pride with your strength at work within us and to choose humility, and with your grace at work in us, Lord, we believe we can do this, and we believe that you'll help us, even starting right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been so good having you with us today. Hope you have a great 4th of July weekend, and let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and remember, 
The God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.